You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. I'm speaking with Robert J. Sawyer. His new book is Triggers. Thank you for joining me, Robert. It's my pleasure, Rick. Thanks for having me. One of the things that I really like about your novels is the way you can take a a really clear and comprehensible science fiction concept and then spin it out through society, through plot and characters. And your latest novel, Triggers, is a perfect example of this. So I'd like you to just talk a little bit about uh, stumbling upon this concept and how you decided to, to spin it out in the manner you did. Sure. Uh, One of the things that's a hallmark of my work is accessibility. I have big science concepts, but so does, say, Charles Strauss, for instance. But I want to have people who've never before read science fiction be comfortable reading my books, as well as habitual readers of the genre still enjoying it. So I'm not, you know, lowest common denominator, but I want to be in accessible style. And that does mean you take one big idea. You don't overwhelm the reader with 20 or 30 bizarre concepts. You take one idea and you just shake it and stir it and wring everything you can out of that central notion until the whole thing has been explored. And for triggers, actually, I'll tell you very mercenarily, triggers started because I'd had a great success with my novel, Flash Forward. It became a TV series on ABC, and I was looking for another high concept, big idea that was as easy to explain as Flash Forward. Flash Forward, everybody on Earth blacks out for two minutes. Those who survive have had visions of the future. Triggers, a select group of people, end up discovering that one can read the memories of the next in the chain. So that A can read B, B can read C, but it's not reciprocal. It doesn't go backwards. And what would it be like to have access to somebody else's memories? That might be cool. You know their PIN numbers for their bank accounts. You would know all kinds of gossip about them. But wait a second. Somebody else has access to you. How do you feel reading forward and being read from behind? That was what Triggers was all about. Well, you've also combined this with a political thriller, and I think that's something that uh, makes your novels uh, really tense. And I'd like you to talk about your the kind of plotting you do, because the kind of plotting you do has as much to do with mystery as it does to do with science fiction, I think even more. Yes, absolutely. And I'm lucky enough to have won Canada's top mystery fiction award, as well as you know Hugo and Nebula and all that kind of science fiction stuff. Um, to me... It makes no sense that science fiction and fantasy are categorized together or shelved together in bookstores because they're antithetical. One is things that really might happen, and the other is things that never could happen. But mystery and science fiction have very similar reading protocols. The reader is being very attentive to little things in the text, trying to pick up the clues that have been salted into the narrative by the author. And uh, in, for the purpose of a mystery to figure out who done it, for the purpose of a science fiction novel, figure out what the heck is going on. What is this world like? And I very much write like a mystery author. Uh, Triggers was an interesting thing for me because, yes, it's a mystery novel, but it's also a techno-thriller, which is a huge genre. You know, Tom Clancy and all these people, uh, Robert Ludlum and so forth. And I wanted to do something that had that, that really rapid-fire pacing of a true thriller because I'd never done that before. 
the hallmark Robert J. Sawyer scene, the signature scene, and the one I'm going to, one of the ones that, actually it's not the one I'm reading tonight uh, here at SF and SF, but uh, one that I often read related to this novel, has nobody move in it at all. It's just a guy thinking interesting thoughts, hopefully very dramatically. And that's, you know, very common in a Rob Sawyer novel, my best-known novel that, besides Flash Forward, probably Calculating God, two guys spending 400 pages arguing back and forth about creationism versus evolution, and every once in a while one of them gets up to go to the bathroom. That's as dramatic as it gets in terms of action. But in Triggers, I wanted a slam-bang pacing as an exercise for me, and also because of the way our memories work as a kind of symbolic reflection. Your, your memory is, is uh, jostled and jarred and is a springboard. You'll think of this, and suddenly you're thinking of that, and then you're over here, you're over there. Uh, a whole cascade effect happens when you start to recall one thing and the next. And I wanted the book to kind of have that feel of memories tumbling one after the other. It's so interesting, too, that this is about memory because we're in the midst of a scientific revolution about our understanding of memory and how the mind works and how neuroscience works. And so this is a, a real good opportunity for you to, like, get into those cracks. That's right. I've had a kind of a shtick as a writer for, oh, 17 years now, which is consciousness, the nature of consciousness. It's in terminal experiment. It's in hominids, humans, and hybrids. It's in mind scan, which is about uploading consciousness. My novels, Wake, Watch, and One about spontaneous emergence of consciousness, but the one aspect of consciousness that I had given short shrift to had been memory. And one of the reasons was because we didn't really know how it worked. The fundamental thing, it, it almost is, consciousness is almost pointless without memory. Do you vote Republican or Democrat? Well, you remember what your party affiliation is. You don't discover it. Uh, de novo every day. You remember it. Do you like or not like broccoli? Did you have a fight last night with your wife or not? Uh, do you get along with that coworker? Do you trust this coworker? Without your memories, you're almost incapable of functioning in the real world. And I realized that to sort of com complete or continue my exploration of human consciousness, that I really needed to devote not just a little bit here and there, but a whole novel to this notion of what is memory? How is it reconstructed each time we recall something and whether that reconstruction is accurate or not. And this gets to, I think, one of the real great strengths of your writing is that um, you can take uh, an abstract notion like this about memory and turn it into an action thriller. That's what the great... Uh, power of science fiction is to externalize the, the, the difficult abstract thoughts. Absolutely. I, what I sometimes say about science fiction is that it is the metaphoric made literal. Uh, you know, we always say, oh, if you could read my mind, you wouldn't believe what I'm thinking. Well, we make that literal in science fiction. Oh, I can read my mind. Oh, my God, you're a child molester or you're planning to overthrow the U.S. government or whatever it is. Uh, and we do this. It's actually a very good technique. Uh, I teach it on those times that I teach science fiction writing, I say, take one of those things in life, a commonplace. Um, flash forward was the same thing, the metaphoric, oh, if I'd only known then what I know now, my life would be so much better. Well, would it be? Let's make that literal. Oh, I do know now what I you know, wouldn't have otherwise known for 20 years. Am I better off knowing that? And it really is, I think, one of the key things that science fiction does is it makes concrete it's a, it's a, it makes into dramatic situations things that otherwise would just be debating points. And uh, that's the joy of writing science fiction for me. And in terms of, you know, characterization, as I always say, if a writer's going to study anything at university and you know you're going to make it as a writer, which is a big, you don't know, 
uh, study psychology because characterization is nothing but the art of dramatizing psychology. Talk about creating characters to explore the kind of uh, concepts that you find in science fiction novels. You know, Triggers has a bigger cast than any book I've ever done. In fact, one of the reviewers said, this has got as many characters in it as Lord of the Rings. And considering it's much thinner than Lord of the Rings, I thought that was interesting. Uh, For me, the number one thing is who your main character is. And your main character should be the person who is least comfortable with whatever the premise is. Not most comfortable, but least comfortable. So if the premise is somebody is reading your mind, it's got to be somebody who very much doesn't want their mind read, not the person who says, oh, yeah, man. If people would so understand me and everybody would love me if they only knew me better and could read my mind. So you find the people who don't want that, the people who are discombobulated or discommoded by the premise. And um, yet in Triggers, I also, and in most of my books, I like to have a panoply of responses. One of the failures of some science fiction is, you know, we get uh, robots and everybody goes, oh, good. Now we have robots. No, there are going to be some people say, yeah, wait, robot's cool. No, wait a minute. Robot took my job. Wait a minute. Robot took my girlfriend. Wait a minute, you know. And uh, so particularly in Triggers, I wanted to have the whole range of responses. And I have, a, for instance, a guy, a lawyer who comes in and says, you've Mr. Uh, doctor here, Mr. Scientist, you've screwed it up. Somebody else is reading my memory. And he doesn't say, and I'm going to sue you over that. He's going to say, I will sue you if you break that connection. Because she's the most attentive, wonderful lover I've ever had in my life now that she can read exactly what it is that I want. And to go the other way with it is also part of the, uh, the art of doing characterization. You write fast and write well. How do you queue up your books in your mind? Do you have like 10 books, 10 ideas ready to hatch, or do you just grab the first thing that comes to your mind after the next last one's finished? Uh, it's, It's not either of those precisely. I only work on one book at a time because I don't have enough working memory in my head, not enough RAM. Uh, to juggle them more than one. If I do that, and I have tried occasionally, they start getting mixed up, and a character who belongs in book A starts showing up in book B, and especially when they're not related books, not a series, that can be a real problem. So I have always five or six ideas that I'm making little notes for and doing kind of little bits of background reading related to nonfiction reading and research. And when I finished Triggers, which was uh, a year ago, sorry, when I finished the one I just finished, Great Martian Fossil Rush, now called Red Planet Blues, um, I started looking at the four or five that I had on the back burner and said, which one is starting to feel like it's ready to be brought to a boil? And uh, for that, I have one that I want to do on the nature of uh, free, uh, or the, uh, the existence of free will versus um, determinism which is uh, an issue that I think physics and neuropsychology say a lot about, which used to be just something you could argue. I believe we have free will. Yeah, well, I believe we have determinism. Okay, shake hands, go home. I believe we don't have free will because of this, 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 and this. You trump that. Hard to trump when you start looking at the physics and the neurobiology of it. And uh, But that just seemed ripe to go to be the next book. Have you uh, read the new uh, Michael Gazzaniga book? I have the book. um, And... Uh, you know, you say, have you read it? Which is very interesting. I have it as an audiobook, and I'm listening to it um, and enjoying it immensely. I try to do a half an hour on the treadmill every morning, and so I'm going through it right now on the treadmill. Do you find that listening to a book is a different kind of reading experience for you than reading a book? Yes. And what's really bizarre um, is listening to my own books on, say, Audible has 15 of my titles now, and listening to them read by somebody else. 
sometimes the reader finds in the text things that I didn't even know were there, uh, a moment to be ironic or to maybe uh, be a little bit sarcastic that I didn't intend. Uh, and sometimes they miss things that I thought I had made narrator proof. Uh, but most of the time, yes, it's a very interesting experience. And I find um, for nonfiction, um, it's not actually as good as it is for fiction. Fiction is an experience that should be experienced from page one to page last in linear sequence. A nonfiction book, you might reach a chapter and say, okay, so here is the chapter on the history of the, coloni- uh, the, the mapping Mars you know, Scaparelli and all of that. You think, I know all that. I'll jump ahead. And then you'll reach a point farther in the book where you say, oh, maybe I should have read part of that Scaparelli chapter. I missed something important. And you'll want to go back. And so nonfiction, I find, um, is eminently more usable as a printed text. And you can highlight and so forth, and uh, or as an ebook. Um, and fiction really lends itself well to the uh, audible experience. But because I'm gearing up to a new novel right now, everything I'm taking in is nonfiction, is research, and that's why uh, the, the um, book you mentioned is the one that I'm listening to. One of the things that interests me is your WWW series. Talk, up, talk about writing a, a series like that where you, you have a much bigger arc than your single novel. You know, it's funny you should say that because I had sold that book as a single novel to Tor, to David Hartwell at Tor. And I spent better part of a year trying to make it work as a single book. And I finally had to say to David and to Tom Doherty, the publisher at Tor, I'm not going to be able to deliver this. This isn't turning out to be a single book. And I said, so I owe you a book, got a contract. I'm going to write another book instead. And I pitched them rollback on the spot, which is a really simple high concept novel. Uh, An elderly couple uh, get offered a chance to be rejuvenated, made young again. It works for the man and it fails for the woman. Boom, what does that do to their relationship? And they said, yep, go write that book. And it was a, the book was a fine success. And then I turned around and started marketing Wake, Watch, and Wonder as a trilogy with that canvas. And although Tor made a bid to acquire it, um, it actually, Penguin made a much bigger bid and ended up being over at Ace uh, Books. Um, and uh, the trilogy is about emergent consciousness. Uh, I don't think we're very close to developing AI in the laboratory. Uh, I've been to the AI lab at MIT, the robotics lab at Carnegie Mellon, Mellon, and all this sort of thing. They're nowhere near thinking machines. They don't have the slightest inkling uh, inkling of how consciousness, self-awareness occurs. But we know that consciousness can be created in no more than nine months and that it can reside in something that weighs no more than five pounds because parents do it all the time when they create children and brains. So we have the pr- physical parameters of how complex a project it is. And evolution is great at doing these sorts of things through trial and error. And I wanted to write about spontaneous emergence of intelligence. But it, how would it be different if the intelligence was one of a kind, not any kind of social entity as we always have been and our ancestors were, uh, and is not has no reason to want to reproduce and has no... Um, thinking that it's never going to die. It's, why wouldn't it live forever? And what kind of entity might emerge out of that? And what kind of relationship, hopefully symbiotic one, we might forge with it? And that's Wake, Watch, and Wonder. You know, something about your books that I really like is they're really kind of positive, even if they're, they're, they involve yes. threatening, life-threatening. You have a great uh, positive vibe to your science fiction, and that's unusual. Yes, it is. In fact, there's a line in Wake 
which starts out as a line from William Gibson, the opening line of Neuromancer, and William Gibson, Bill Gibson, I've known him for years. Um, the opening line of Neuromancer is, the sky above the port was the color of television tuned to a dead channel. And I say that, and I put an M dash, and say, which is to say it was a bright, chittery blue. Because in Bill's conception of cyberspace and the future of computing, it was going to be grainy and gritty and dark and unpleasant which is what a television tuned to a dead channel was in the early 1980s when he wrote that book. And now if you tune the television to a dead channel, you get this bright blue uniform background that looks like the most perfect sunny day. And my vision of the future and William Gibson's vision of the future or Margaret Atwood's vision of the future, today my other two Canadian colleagues, I guess, in writing science fiction, um, my view is very optimistic. I look at today, 2012 as we talk, and think about how much better off we are today than we were 20 years ago, and how much better off 20 years ago we were than 20 before that. Uh, standard of living, lifestyle, convenience, interconnectivity, all of this stuff. And I just think the only reasonable thing for a science fiction writer to do is to extrapolate the actual trend, which is life is getting better, not worse. Um, I've had this thought for a number of years, a decade or more now, but Steven Pinker very nicely articulated it in his most recent uh, non-fiction book, The Better Angels of Our Nature, which is his exploration of why human violence has declined to all-time lows in the history of the human species. Less violent crime than ever before. Fewer people as a percentage of population in armed combat than ever before. Fewer sexual crimes in developed nations than ever before. Why is this? Well, the answer is we're getting better as a species as our technology and our science gets better around us. And I want to celebrate that. You know, I don't think we're particularly alike as stylists. But if you're looking for kind of the left-wing, socialist-leaning, uh, big ideas, optimistic guys in science fiction. It's me and Kim Stanley Robinson against, <laughs> sometimes I think, everybody else in the field who's out there writing, you know, their Bane um, war, uh, you know, uh, war-oriented militaristic science fiction that says, no, no, we're just waiting for a chance for civilization to collapse a little bit so men can be men again. And uh, you're waiting for civilization to rise so we can give peace a chance. Exactly. Absolutely. Give peace a chance. Totally. Totally. Uh, I'm a pacifist. I was raised a Unitarian. Uh, I totally believe that uh, there are answers other than might. But I'm a Canadian. And the thing is, that informs everything about my existence. Canada is not a might-makes-right nation. Canada is a middle power at best. We can't go in and say to Saddam Hussein, you know what, you're no longer in charge here, we're in charge now. We don't have the firepower, nor do we have the inclination to want to do that. Uh, the airport I flew here from, we're in San Francisco now, I flew here from Lester B. Pearson International Airport in Toronto. And who was Lester B. Pearson? He was a Nobel Peace Prize winner, Canadian prime minister, who uh, solved the Suez crisis and in the process thereof created the notion of United Nations peacekeeping forces. That's the heritage of my country. That's what Canada is. It's a country that doesn't have a second amendment to its constitution. Nobody's packing heat. We get along uh, because we like to get along, not because we're afraid the other guy is going to blow our head off if we uh, look at him sideways. I've been speaking with Robert J. Sawyer. His new novel is Triggers. Thank you for joining me, Robert. Rick, my pleasure. Thank you.
You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Thank you.